This is from Dogen's Shobogenzo, fascicle titled Shohaku Makusa, which means refrain from all evil whatsoever. Rakuten, the governor of uh, Hung Chao, trained under meditation master Dolin of Choka. One day, Rakuten asked Dolin, just what is the major intention of the Buddha Dharma? Dolin replied, refrain from all evil whatsoever, uphold and practice all that is good. Rakuten remarked, if that's all there is to it, even a child of three knows how to say it. Don replied, though a three-year-old child can say it, there are old men in their 80s who still cannot put it into practice. Upon hearing this, Rakutan had an understanding and bowed in gratitude. So today, after this talk, we will hold a short ceremony called Fusatsu. And during this event, we will recite, we will all recite together the 16 Bodhisattva precepts and then offer prostrations as a way to express the depth of our intention with the entire body, not just with the mouth. Holding fusatsu on some regular basis is a part of the practice in the Soto Zen tradition. And we do so for various reasons. Primarily because we are very stubborn and very attached to our ways of thinking and acting. And we need to repeat things again and again and again and again. So the barriers dissolve. And there are other reasons. Working with the Bodhisattva vows is an integrated and inseparable aspect of Zen practice, whether or not we have formally received the precepts during Jukai ceremony. And as human beings, we, we tend to pick and choose and experience some resistance when we engage with most endeavors in life, especially when it comes to a formal practice such as Zen, which is one of our many habitual reactivities we need to become aware of and learn to put them to good use. Since our reactivities and resistances in practice, in terms of practice, are not perceived as barrier, but rather ingredients that can be used to deepen our understanding. Although in some cases, we may see them as barriers and they will block us from proceeding along the path or from deepening our practice. So in our tradition, the precepts are a part of Siddha Paramita, which means the perfection of ethical conduct. So the first one is Dana Paramita, the perfection of generosity. They're all interrelated, interconnected. The second is Sila Paramita, perfection of morality through upholding precepts. Ksanti Paramita, perfection of patience, obviously goes along with that. Vilya Paramita, perfection of energy, courage. 
Jnana Paramita, perfection of meditation, and Prajna Paramita, the perfection of wisdom. Paramita literally means the one who goes beyond, or to go beyond. And what we go beyond is our small-minded self that resides within the illusion of separateness. The challenge of going beyond our small-mindedness is that we put so much trust in it. Even when we intellectually may understand that it is not fundamentally true. And we see the harm that this delusion creates. We still experience strong gravitational pull towards thinking and functioning that perpetuates self-centeredness. And so to expand beyond the harmful small-mindedness, we need to cultivate resolve and discipline. So Sila Paramita actually can be also understood as the cultivation of discipline, because without discipline, there's no way we can work with precepts. We can recite precepts, but that's as far as it's going to go, without the discipline to uphold them. Otherwise, we cannot maintain a strong practice. And a strong practice consists of maintaining daily zazen, janna paramita, give rise to wisdom through zazen, prajna paramita, and manifest wisdom in our, in our daily life through morality and ethical conduct, sila paramita. The way we function with each other through our daily activities is the way we actualize wisdom. There's the body of wisdom and then there's the function of wisdom. And they are is inseparable. Now when we see the interconnectedness between jhana, meditation, prajna, wisdom, and sila, morality, we understand the importance of working with the precepts as an expression of our true nature not something to take on, but something that can help us realize who we are. And it also a way, as a way to strengthen the trust in that true nature. So it is a path that leads from, away from our harmful blindness to being in the world as a force of goodness. Is this not necessary? Is this not urgent? Do we have the luxury to ponder if we agree or disagree with precepts, with the way they are put together, with bowing, with chanting, whatever it is that we disagree with? Winang said that the capacity of the mind is great, but when we don't use it, it is small. You know, the atrocities Putin is committing are most cur most current example of what happens when we don't use the mind's great capacity and instead act in accordance with our small-mindedness. It's always the same mind that has the capacity to contract and to expand. And it's the same eye that can be closed or open. Or the same hand that can heal or kill. 
It's not in the hand. It's in the way we use it. And what's happening with the world now is clearly showing both. A blind eye and a contracted mind giving rise to senseless acts of violence. And an expansive mind and an open eye that propels nations around the world to unify and offer assistance. Madness and wisdom co-arise. Or maybe madness reminds us of the wisdom within. Some of us. Buddhism teaches that our capacity to do good and our capacity to cause harm are equally there within each of us. That we need to develop the ability to discern between what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. And to do that, we have to investigate the workings of our thinking mind and observe the automatic mechanisms that give life to our thoughts and emotions through our speech and actions. And this is extremely important since unwholesome thoughts tend to lead to unwholesome actions and wholesome thoughts tend to lead to wholesome actions. So it's imperative that we cultivate and maintain the awareness to discern between the two. As human beings, we naturally harbor repetitive thinking and emotions, emotion patterns that tend to have roots in our past experiences and our karma. And we also experience a wide gamut of emotions as we function through everyday life. Happiness, sadness, regrets, loneliness, doubts, loss, inadequacies, being encouraged, feeling discouraged, and so on. And it's all quite natural for everyone, whether we are aware of it or not. And it is all happening in the background while we interact with each other and cope with changing circumstances, which means that it has an effect on our speech and our actions, and it ripples through our environment. What we experience internally can potentially blind us to the larger perspective of our surroundings. And it can contribute to our small-mindedness, especially if we're unaware of it. So first we need to acknowledge that our thoughts and emotions have an impact, impact on how we perceive the world and how we interact with each other. Everyone is in the same boat when it comes to that. We all are affected by what we think. We all are affected by karma. So we have to recognize that. Second, we need to recognize the power of discernment through awareness. Discernment through awareness. And the power of raising deliberate intention through working with the vows. So yes, we should never un underestimate the power of our madness, but also the power of our wisdom. So we, we may feel discouraged when we encounter madness to such a degree. 
And what happens when we feel discouraged and go along with that, those feelings? What happens to our capacity for wisdom? We lose trust in it. We don't foster a different way of thinking or acting. And then the capacity of the mind is small. Not just over there. Here, in us, today, it is small. Why? Because we encounter small-mindedness. And we feel discouraged. Sometimes people feel very jaded by that. Why should I bother? It doesn't work. It's pointless. We don't practice so other people see that and follow along. We practice because it's the only way we want to be. Because we want to obey a deeper aspect of our being. We don't practice and stick the finger in the wind and, say, and ask, is the world seeing me? Is the world hearing the message? That will be conditional. That will not be remaining true to who we are. That will be remaining true to the mind that separates and divides and creates such atrocities. A conditional mind. So that's not a correct way to practice. A correct wholehearted way to practice does not look forward, does not measure the practice based on what I get out of it. And we do it, obviously, we do it with our own lives. We think I've practiced for a while, now I expect to reap the fruit of my labor. And my expectations were as such and now reality does not obey those expectations, and therefore, there's something wrong with the practice. This is exactly the mind or the way we think. This is the mind we have to get away from. To be wholehearted is simply that. And so to work with precepts is to understand that the precepts are only a natural way of being who we are as human beings, when we understand what it means to be a human being. So in a way, the precepts are kind of an extra tools that help us understand who we are. Help us return home to what we are and then function from there. And so when we work with the vows, we take on the responsibility to maintain a level of awareness that allows us to monitor our inner state of being so we can notice how it changes in response to our thoughts, emotions, memories, and triggers. Noticing what arises internally and the way it changes our mood or state of being, we need first to accept and own up to it rather than argue with what's going on, argue with the person in front of us. 
and then learn to regulate it by turning our attention to the breath, to the body, to the earth, or anything else that help us ground our energy, help us return home. Anything that reminds us to look within, that we, it reminds us that we are much greater than we think we are. Anything that reminds us of our great capacity for wisdom. And when we practice this way, we can discern between thoughts and emotions that are unwholesome and harmful and those that are wholesome and beneficial. Then we see that Often there is more caring and there is a more caring and loving way to respond to other people, even when they are annoying, or even when they act in self-centered ways. So, in other words, when we encounter small-mindedness, there is a strong tendency to react to that with small-mindedness. Of course, it's easy. It's the easiest way to react. It's also the most immediate knee-jerk reaction that we are very used to. But we have to internalize. We have to own up. Not own up to what other people are doing. Own up to the way we react to what other people are doing or saying. It's a big difference there. We cannot be responsible for what's happening but we can take responsibility for the way we react to what's happening. And it's the only way to transcend the small-mindedness. Otherwise, we add more to the same of the same. So when we work with our own anger, for example, and anger is very dangerous. When we don't know how to meet it, when we don't know how to regulate it, when we don't take responsibility, Responsibility is not blame. Responsibility is simply that. It opens, uh, it opens us up to doing something about it. And when we do something about it and we ground ourselves, then our ability and capacity naturally grow. Then we can meet the world from a much larger perspective. But we have to practice it. We have plenty of opportunities to practice it, not just by reading the news, but by the way we interact and respond and react to each other on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. Not automatically go along with those reactivities. Take a deep breath. Sit with it. Look at it. Examine. And learn to use it rather than argue with it or, or try to reject or suppress and pretend it's not so. It is so. There is, there are intense emotions arising within us. So to, to learn to work with the world, we have to learn to work with ourselves first. And it's really that, it's ourselves. We get in the way of expanding our mind to that capacity. We stifle ourselves, not the world. And when we stifle ourselves, we stifle the world. 
So discernment through awareness of our state of being is extremely important if we want to learn how to avoid doing harm. Also, when we are not aware of the inner workings of the thinking mind and we don't use discernment, we tend to mostly hear ourselves when interacting with each other. And, and when we do that, when this happens, we are as if deaf and blind. We think we know what we're hearing. We think we know what we're seeing. But do we? Which voice is louder? Is it the voice in the head or voice of reality? Is it the voice of the other person? Am I seeing beyond? Or am I seeing small and contracted? So we, we can be convinced that we know exactly why a person is behaving in a certain way while being completely immersed in our own perceptions of the situation. And there are often natural reasons why we get caught up in perceptions. Of course we do. Not, we don't want to pretend that perceptions don't happen in the mind and that we don't get caught up in those perceptions. I'm not sure if you were following, recently there was the, uh, the trial of uh, Kim Potter, who last year killed uh, the police officer who killed Dante Wright. Uh, she... Uh, she thought she's pulling the taser, she pulled the gun, she killed him. It's a horrifically sad event that left a lot of people in shock. Great deal of sadness. But I was, I was following the, the trial. I was really interested in, in seeing it because there's a lot we can learn about human beings when we watch such things. And it was just really sad situation. So at the end, uh, Dante Wright's mother, she, was, she described Kim Potter as, as heartless and uncaring. And she said that every time Kim Potter would pass by them where they were sit the family was sitting, she said she didn't have, even have the decency to look us in the eyes how heartless she can be, that she's not, she doesn't, she's not have, doesn't have the decency to look us in the eyes. And then when Kim Potter had a chance to talk after the verdict, or maybe before the verdict, she said, after causing you this great harm and pain, I didn't feel that I have the right to look you in the eye. It was equal. There was pain on both sides. And pain was the driver. But on one side, you look and you see, you think, well, this person doesn't care. Not even considering the possibility that this person feels so terrible about this reckless act. A moment of mistake, second of mistake. Most likely this person will live with that for the rest of her life. But then we think we know. We think we know what we hear, what we see. 
And based on what we think we know, we speak and act. How could it not lead to harm? Of course, we're going to cause harm to each other. We don't even see each other. If we don't work with the inner workings of our mind, if we don't take the time to investigate, to understand how I work, to understand our reactivities. So our perceptions of reality and of other people are created in the mind, but if we're not aware, if we're not aware of any of it, the road to harm can be quite short. You remember 10 years ago, George Zimmerman killed Trayvon Martin. Trayvon Martin, who was just walking to his father's house after getting a snack from a convenience store. And what George Zimmerman saw was very different from reality. His mind, he saw his own mind. And his biases, obviously. And somehow what he saw justified pulling the trigger and killing the life, ending the life of a young teenager. Of course, it's an extreme example of how we blind ourselves to a point of killing another human being. But we do a lot of killing. Or we do a lot of not nurturing life. On a moment by moment basis. And so if we want to avoid doing harm, we need to learn to work with our own thoughts and our own emotions. And with the way our karma manifests in us all the time. Because it does manifest in us. Extremely powerful energy. I was just talking to somebody about how easy it is to hate Putin as the villain. But there is no such a thing as Putin. There is a being used by karma. We, we only see the surface. That surface looks like put, we call it Putin in this case. But it's not him. It's eons of karma that manage to blind this particular being and use it to perpetuate itself. So who do we hate? Right? If we understand, if we go deep and understand it this way, we actually may have no one to hate. But that won't be satisfying. Because we love to hate. And it's easy to hate. It's easier to hate than to investigate deeper. There is no such person, but there is a great deal of harm caused by the perpetuation of karma through that being. That much is true. And this is where precepts come in. This is why it is so important that we work with not causing harm, doing good, 
actualize goodness for others, but not just by saying it, not just by thinking that we know what we mean by that. It's a lifelong commitment. So Rakuten asked Dorin, what is the major intention of the Buddha Dharma? And he said, refrain from all evil whatsoever. Just do good. Practice all that is good. And he said, well, if that's all there is to it, a child can say that. Yeah, a child can say that. And then people live their entire lives not knowing how to put that into practice. So he's saying there's nothing special about it. There is nothing special about it. We shouldn't make a big deal out of practice or doing good. But we have to stay at it. We have to practice again and again and again and recite it. Recite it with our entire being. Body and mind, the totality of our being. And even saying that is just saying that, right? So to say... Do it wholeheartedly has nothing to do with doing it wholeheartedly. It's just that when we say, I'm doing it wholeheartedly, we, we can deceive ourselves to think that we know what that means. So if we have recited the vows before or have never recited the vows before, it doesn't matter. Because here is another opportunity to recite the vows. Here is another opportunity to take on the responsibility to work with the vow. So Dogen commented on this and said, to think that a three-year-old child cannot give rise to the Buddha Dharma or to think that a three-year-old child is cute is the highest of foolishness. This is because clarifying what birth is and clarifying what death is constitutes the most important matter for a Buddhist practitioner. That is a grave matter. Says the master, out of pity, could not give up on Rakuten, and he went on to say, though a three-year-old child can say there are old men in their 80s who still cannot put it into practice. The heart of what he says exists in what a child of three can say and what and this we must thoroughly investigate. And to thoroughly investigate is to understand what it means to practice for the rest of our lives. Also, that's Dogen. Also, there is the practice which 80-year-olds may not be doing, but which we must diligently engage in. This refrain from all evil whatsoever is not something that worldly people are apt to think of before concocting what they are going to do. Right? We may recite the vows on a Sunday morning, but then it's not what, what we think about or it's not what we examine just before we are about to say or do something. We don't ask, is that going to be beneficial? Is that going to be helpful? Or am I just saying it to get ahead, to prove a point, to be seen, for others to see that I'm right and they're wrong? On and on and on. 
or to defend something. Because most of it is self-centered if we are truly willing to examine, we will see that other than benefiting this idea of self, it's not going beyond. So often, if we, do, if we truly look at it this way, we will realize, I really don't have anything to say. So I'll just keep my mouth shut. That will be beneficial. And that will be wholesome. And then he said last line, the comic consequences of our good and bad actions are what we are training with. That's the practice. That's what the precepts are about. From the first day we enter this practice, we make a vow to be a fearless bodhisattva. Now bodhisattva, body is awakened, sattva is being. Sattva means being, an awakened being. And we practice being an awakened being. We don't practice to become an awakened being later. It's just an idea. To practice awakened being is to awaken to each moment to what the moment is, not to what we think about the moment. And that awakening includes shedding light on what we think or what arises in the mind when we encounter other people and situations. So we take the responsibility to refrain from harm and do good, even while our minds concoct all kinds of stories about ourselves and about other people. And even while the forces of our karma operate strongly within us. So to fully embrace life and fully giving ourselves to whatever arises is what we practice. And practice is based on what is rather than what we think it should be like. So now, today, with this madness that's going on in the world, senseless killing and, and, and just madness, we have to awaken to that. We have to embrace the fact that it is happening. That's what it means to embrace. Not to agree. But to understand that it is happening. And to understand the forces that give rise to that. And to understand that those forces are within each of us. And instead of, instead of letting it discourage us, we have to learn to use it as a way to encourage us to deepen our practice, to go further, to go, to go beyond, to truly go beyond. So Silla Paramitta, which includes all the other five Paramitta. Thank you.